it seems like in 2020, every week brings a new crisis. And I've seen several jokes online, is there any way that we can push reset? Can we restart 2020? You know, I made a joke yesterday. I had the privilege of going down to a very small social distance compliant service in the Bainbridge, Georgia area, and there was a congregation of about 20 people that met all safely and scattered throughout a building, probably a one and a half times the size of our sanctuary in here. And I made the passing remark that before the end of the year, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, New York gets blown up with a volcano and space aliens arrive and start shooting people with lasers. You know, this is such a strange year. We have a pandemic. We have wars and rumors of wars. You have almost comically, though it isn't, it isn't a funny threat, murder hornets, whatever in the world that is. And as you know, over the past week, we've seen cities in the United States literally set ablaze in rioting. And this ought to trouble us. It ought to distress the child of God when we see civil unrest in the world. And I don't know about you, I I trembled to think about what else could happen in the world between now and the second coming of Christ. By the way, this shouldn't take any disciple of Christ who's familiar with the Word of God by surprise. Evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Before the second coming of Christ, there'll be a great falling away. There will be an individual, the man of sin, the son of perdition, that wicked one, who deceives great masses of people. And he, with lying signs and wonders, will even attempt to seduce you. And Jesus will destroy him with the brightness of his coming. That's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. From Revelation 20, we know that there's a ruler, Gog, and his people, Magog, that at the loosening of Satan from his binding will go around the world causing all sorts of fighting and calamity and destruction. And as you read there, there will be so many people fighting that they are as innumerable as the sands of the sea. That sounds like a major global skirmish, doesn't it? And the Bible says that that will come to pass. We know that this world is not a place that is ever going to be better. It's a place that's going to be worse and worse. Even this very planet waxes old as does a garment. Jesus didn't come to save us to a pristine, wealthy, healthy life on this planet. He came to save us from this place and save us from our sins and deliver us to a place where there is no sorrow, no sin, no death, no sickness. And we are saved by the hope of that day. But as we look around in the world today, we see a place that is overrun with violence. And if you want to know the reaction of the child of God, it shouldn't be to be entertained. We live in a world that is so often absolutely obsessed with bloodlust. And we should never desire to see violence in the world. Anytime that there's a potential, a possibility of a war, our hearts within us should melt with the thought of violence, men shedding blood with other men. There are just wars that we ought to fight. And at times, according to Hebrews 11, God's people by faith took up weapons and repelled enemies. But in general, violence should turn our stomachs. Think back to the Roman Colosseums, how they were entertained by violence. 
sending servants, slaves into coliseums to slash each other and maul each other to death. At times they would take criminals, many times Christians, and release them into coliseums to be devoured by wild animals, alive for their own entertainment. What is God's perspective of the violence of this world? From Genesis chapter 6, we observe that because the heart of men, their hearts were obsessed with only evil continually. Every thought of the imagination of man's heart was only evil continually. The earth was filled with violence, and it grieved God at his heart. And it repented the Lord that he made man on the earth. God regretted, in that sense, repented making man on the earth, that he had even made us because we were so violent. And because of that, God puts this world out of its misery with the flood in Noah's day. 120 years later, God would send a flood to destroy everything that had the breath of life in it upon the face of the earth. But to be very clear, God is grieved by violence. Now, I'm going to confess to you that I went to bed last night at around 1 o'clock with a different message in my mind this, uh, to give to you this day. And at 4 a.m., I woke up, and a flood of scriptures went through my mind. Preachers have some of the best thoughts at 4 a.m. I don't know what it is about 4 a.m. And it's 4 a.m., 3 to 4 o'clock in the morning when preachers wake up with a thought on their mind, you better write it down. I started to take my phone out and type in in my memo every note that, I wanted to make, but as I woke up, they were still there, and I took that as a sign from God that this is what he would have me to say to you today. As we think about the violence in this world, I want to use that as our backdrop today, and I want to specifically ask us the question, what do we do? What is our response? What is it that we say? And specifically, where do we learn the answers to the difficult questions that we have when we see the misery, the violence, the suffering, the tensions that are all around us in the world. It was 1.30 in the morning when I finally turned the television off two nights ago in a hotel in Bainbridge, Georgia. And I'm sure as many of you, our eyes were fixated on cars burning in the streets and Business is going up in flames, rocks thrown through windows, police cars flipped over. Two days before that, I'm sure many of us were disgusted. In fact, I saw many of you post on social media your outrage, your just outrage in the loss of a man unjustly at the hands of those that went to arrest him. Our heart grieves when we see this, and it makes us wonder what can we learn? How do we approach this? What is our strategy? What do we do? I'm thankful to tell you that there is a book that you can go to and you can learn God's will for your life that tells us not only how we're going to go to heaven through the blood of Jesus who died for us, but how Jesus would have us to live and how these commandments that Jesus places on us are not merely do this, don't do that, but we learn lessons for life for how not only to be blessed in our lives, but how to be a blessing in the lives of others. 
As we begin sharing some scripture with the recent tensions as a backdrop, and I was conflicted. Do I talk about this today? Do I mention it as an, an elephant in the room? Not so much here. But these are the moments that God's men stand and share His Word to a broken world. Go back through the Old Testament and read the words of all of these prophets of God. They address the issues at hand. It would be easy today to stand up and just simply preach the message of grace, and we needed that. And I've, I've spent week after week sharing with you from this podium on this porch and in my desk, in my office, scriptures about God's providence and His care of us. But there are times when we need to simply say, thus saith the word of the Lord, this is what's wrong with our world, and this is what we do as the saints of God in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. By the way, Paul says in Philippians that we shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And as we do, we hold forth the word of life. You are the difference makers in this world that literally burns all around us. Now, to sum up the role of this beloved group of people that sit before me in lawn chairs and cars who have come out to a weird-looking, unusual, atypical form of worship on the Lord's Day, what is our role in the world? Jesus sums this up in the book of John chapter 17. Now, to give you a little word about John 17, this is Jesus praying to his Father after preaching a message to his disciples about their role in the world, about the Holy Spirit and his role in their lives, about the work that he was going to do, and the victory that he and all of them through him would have as this world ends. He begins this sermon by saying, let not your heart be troubled. Oh, aren't our hearts troubled? You believe in God, believe also in me. And then as he concludes this message, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he begins praying to his father. And when he prays, notice the sovereign grace in this prayer. Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy son that thy son also may glorify thee as thou hast given him power over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. He would say concerning the wickedness of this world and those that do not belong to him even. He says, I pray for them as children. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. This is a prayer that is rich with God's sovereignty, even in salvation. But as Jesus prays for his disciples, notice how he describes them. What he asks God for them. None of us would be surprised if Jesus said, Father, I pray that you just simply take them from this world, deliver them, cause them to be taken from this world with no suffering, no sorrow. But that wasn't Jesus' request. Jesus says in verse 14, I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. They are what? They are not of the world. The world hates them. Why does the world hate them? Because I've given them thy word. You will never be popular when you walk and stand for Christ. But the world will despise you. And it's a direct parallel. The more you live for Christ, 
The more you stand for his word, the more the world around you will hate you, the more they will mock you, the more they will ridicule you. And if they have the authority to do so, they will persecute you even unto the death. But notice what Jesus says. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. Father, I don't ask that you take them out of the world yet. Now, there's a day when we're going to be taken out of the world. The world will be destroyed. But I don't pray that you take them out of the world. I pray that you keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. It's a common statement that Jesus just made that we quote as ministers, You, beloved, are in the world, but you are not of the world. To put it in a way that modern preachers and theologians have put it, we are a counter culture to this world. As the world goes in one direction, we are to go in another direction. Now, that doesn't mean that we always do the opposite of whatever the world around us is doing. It doesn't mean that if they have electricity, we can't have electricity. It doesn't mean if they're on social media, we can't be on social media. It doesn't mean if they watch the news, we can't watch the news. No. But in matters of morality, in matters of righteousness, in matters of worship, in matters of worldview... We are to be in every way and in all things a counterculture unto the world. You, beloved, are to be different. He would tell them to be separate. Come out from among them. Be holy, for I am holy. How do we know how to be this counterculture? What is the title of our message today? There is a book. Jesus says in verse 17, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Just a chapter later, Pontius Pilate, after he arrested Jesus, would ask the question, What is truth? That's a philosophical question. What is truth? Is there truth? Is there absolute truth? The relativist would say, no, there is not absolute truth. And you could ask him the question, are you absolutely sure? That's how to confuse people. What is truth? Thy word is truth. How does the Christian learn how he or she is to be different, the counterculture in this world? We learn through the truth of God's word. Jesus would also tell Pilate here in John 18, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight, that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. This church is to be a counterculture to the world. And we learn how to be that way through the study of God's Word. As Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, you're the salt of the earth, the preservative. But if salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under the foot of men. Salt in that day was used to preserve meat. They didn't have refrigerators. It was also obviously something that you add to food to give it its flavor. But being a natural preservative, if it was good for nothing, if it was a low-quality salt, do you know what they would do with it? They would salt the roads with it to kill the weeds, to keep the roads passable. And so Jesus said salt that's worth nothing is to be cast out into the roadways as weed control, to be trampled on, to be trodden on by the feet of men. 
We are the salt of this world, the preservative, and if we lose that which makes us special, the world will tread on us, as it were. You're the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. I love the example as you enter into town on 565 coming towards this direction. It's easy to see on a clear night all of the lights from all of the homes on Montesano Mountain. And you can see the flashing lights on the towers, the antennas that broadcast all through this area for the televisions. The city that's set on a hill can't be hid. You see the lights shining. That is your role in this world. That is your place in all of this. As the world burns, you are to be different. God has called us to be different. It's very clear that this is our role in the world. Now, along the lines of, (laughs) if there was only a book, I made a status on social media this week, and if you noticed it, I said, if, if there was only a book that both taught that thou shalt do no murder, while at the same time, on the other hand, saying, thou shalt not steal, it would do a great, a great service to educating those in our world around us today. All of the troubles of this past week in this world could be remedied if there was only a book with the commands to not murder and to not steal. Right? It's very simple. We have a book that teaches us how to live. To do no murder to do no real, true injustice, to love, to care, to be a blessing. It isn't for lack of publication. I can walk into the Dollar Tree and spend one dollar on a copy of the New Testament and learn all of the wisdom of our Lord Jesus Christ in His personal ministry, everything He would tell us, For a mere dollar, there's a stack of them in my office that are worn out and well used. And if anyone wants a free Bible, you don't even have to pay for one. You could just get it. If you've got a smartphone, you can download one. If you've got access to the Internet at the library, you can walk in and you can go to Blue Letter Bible and read the Word of God for free. All of the wisdom that God has given us contained in one volume of books to guide us, to instruct us that we may know how to live, not only in a way that honors God, but peaceably with our fellow man, because it is God's will for us that we lead a quiet and peaceable life. Second Timothy, we are to lead quiet and peaceable lives, glorifying God. About this book, the Apostle Paul wrote in Second Timothy chapter 3 that, It is given all Scripture by inspiration of God, and not to spend a great deal of time on that, but inspiration of God comes from a couple of Greek words, one for breathing and one for God. In other words, the Word of God has been breathed by God. If you've never thought about it, we speak by breathing. 
I would challenge you to try to talk without breathing. Kids, science experiment. You can't do it. Air passes the vocal cords. It causes it to vibrate. And, of course, your mouth and your tongue and your jaw and everything takes shape and forms the words. But it all begins as you breathe out. The word that you have before you, the word of God has been breathed out by God. And this word is profitable for doctrine. We learn the teachings of God's word. The word doctrine means teaching. And so we know what God would have us to do. We learn about how we are here. We learn about our purpose in life. We learn about how we are to be as husbands and wives and moms and dads, citizens, masters, servants, employers, employees, elected officials, government officials. Every part of life is instructed in the Word of God how to live, how to die, how to give, how to love, how to forgive one another for the teachings of God, for reproof. Now, by the way, if I ever preach something from the Word of God, and what I say is literally from the Word of God, and it corrects something that you have done wrong, do not get mad at me. That's not me speaking. It's God speaking. And if God reproves us, blessed be the name of the Lord. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. For correction. Lord, I need to make a course correction. I need to fix something. I need to change something. Let the Word correct us for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. There is a book that teaches us how to live. Now, I want to take just a glance, and this won't be quite as long as our usual messages. We won't go over 65 or 70 minutes. We'll try to keep it under 50. I want to look at some of the issues that are hot-button topics today. I'm not going to be afraid of them. I'm not going to shy away from them. What does the Word of God say about our fellow man? You might put it the way that men... What does the Word of God say about race? And by the way, I believe that there is one race, and that race is Adam. When God made men in the beginning of time, God did not make light-colored men, dark-colored men, and men and women of all shades in between. God made Adam. And the word for man in the Old Testament, you know what the word is? Adam. Mankind is Adam. What are you? You are Adam. I am Adam. The word Adam is believed to have meant red or ruddy. Adam was perhaps a reddish complexion. From Adam, you have all men, all women, all children, everyone being born into the world. And as we read in early Genesis, we all settled, all the different ancestors, the patriarchs of every different type of culture and country and nationality. But we all came from whom? We all came from Adam. 
And then as you know, in Genesis chapter 7, you have the great bottleneck of the flood. We all came from Adam, but we also all came from Noah and his three sons and their wives. That's what the Word of God says about it. The book of James, chapter 3, and verse 9, James is instructing us on how we use our words, and he gives it a, a word here. He describes it as tongues, and so when we say how to use our tongues, understand we're talking about how to use our words. Try to explain things simply for children. How would they understand that? How to use your tongues? And they start giving each other raspberries. We're talking about how we use our words. James warns against cursing men. And he talks about how our tongues are set on fire of hell. He talks about the fact that a tiny little bit in a horse's mouth controls it and guides it and steers it. And a tiny little rudder on the back of a great vessel controls the direction that that ship sails in the sea. And the point is that sometimes a very small part can control an overall large thing. And in this case, the tongue is the most difficult to control part of the entire human body. If you can govern the tongue, you can govern the rest of yourself. Such a small part of us causes so much trouble. That's why Scripture exhorts us to be swift to hear and slow to speak. That's a lesson that Winslet's don't quite have down pat, to be slow to speak. But when James confronts cursing men, and he, he says that the tongue is an unruly evil no man can tame, full of deadly poison, therewith bless we God the Father, and therewith curse we men. What is his point? By what basis does he argue that it is wrong to curse men with the same tongue that you bless God, which are made after the similitude of God? Why is it wrong to curse men, any men? Because men are made in the image of God. My great-grandmother, who was our connection with the Primitive Baptists, her husband was a deacon. They began their marriage. He was a bootlegger. Eventually, the Lord worked on him, and no longer was he a bootlegger. He became eventually a deacon. She served as the clerk of the church there and kept all the minutes for a period of time. She was a good, godly woman. She was suffering from Alzheimer's and dementia later in her life. And she would tell us the same stories over and over again. One of the things that she would tell us is that her sister would often curse people of different, what they would say, races, different cultures, different skin complexions. And she would tell them that when you do that, you're cursing someone made in God's image for whom Jesus perhaps even shed his blood, you are cursing your God. They're made after the similitude of God. Jesus shed his blood for them. If they are in the image of God and Jesus redeemed them, how dare I despise one because they have a different level of skin pigment? What would Scripture have us to know and believe about this? That men... All men are image bearers of God, and because of that, at minimum, 
we're to look at them as image bearers. Revelation 5, 9 and Revelation 7, 9 tells us that Jesus has a people, an innumerable host of people out of every nation, kindred, and tongue. When we curse someone that is different than us, we might be cursing someone that will be with us in heaven for eternity. That ought to break our hearts to think about. What does Scripture say about race? It says that we are to look at all men as people made in the image of God. By the way, this also tells us what we ought to believe about abortion, doesn't it? If I am to take the life, if I take the life of an unborn child, I am destroying an image bearer of God himself. And so things like that should be outlawed. Why is it wrong to kill a man unjustly, but it isn't wrong to... I ate chicken twice yesterday. Why was it okay to eat the two chickens? Because the chicken isn't made in the image of God. The man is made in the image of God. What would that simple teaching do to change the world around us? If everyone, think about all the millions of people who name the name of Christ in this world. What if that teaching, and by the way, I mean everyone, no matter their race, what if everyone of every race who named the name of Christ put that teaching into practice? The world around us would be a different place. People wouldn't hate you because of the way you look, and we wouldn't hate people because of the way that they look. We would respect them as an image bearer, and we would love them as our neighbors and even as our brothers and sisters in Christ. Concerning the matter of hate, and this is often such a one-sided argument. By the way, it is hateful if you go into a man's business and burn it to the ground. That is hate. Jesus taught us in Matthew 5, in verse 43. Now listen, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is real life. This is the hard saying, who can know it? Jesus said, you have heard that it hath been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. Isn't that the way that humanity teaches? You love people that are like you, and you hate people that are your enemy. One time when Jesus taught on this, he was asked, who is my neighbor? In other words, Lord, give me a list of those that are my neighbors so I know who I have to love, but anybody else that I can get by with, let me hate them. By the way, we are natural-born haters. I'm tempted to make a joke, hater. We're natural-born haters. Titus chapter 3, hateful and hating one another. We are natural-born haters of others. What makes a difference in the life of a child of God? Grace. The washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Being justified freely by His grace. God in the new birth teaches us how to love. 1 John 4 says, if a man lacks love, he's not even born of God because God is love. If God is in the heart, love is in the heart. How can I say God is in my heart if I hate? Jesus says, you've heard it said that you love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. There's a couple of times in my life 
at least, that God has given me the strength in a moment of cursing to respond simply with, God bless you. Now, there are dozens upon dozens of times in my life when someone cursed me, and that is not how I responded. Believe me, I can dish it out as well as anybody. Now, some of my high school friends might be watching this, and they're probably going to write, Amen. That guy's mean. It is my name, you know. My nephews call me Uncle Mean. I can be mean. But there have been a couple of times in my life when I've been cursed to my face, and God gave me the strength in that moment to simply look at the person cursing me and say, God bless you. It pours coals of fire on their head. It does one of two things. It either softens a heart or it enrages them. And depending on what type of person you're dealing with, the reaction will be different. What does the Word of God say about hate? And I mean us hating somebody, somebody hating us. It doesn't matter. I'm not talking about us hating people. I'm talking about people hating people. Any person who hates any person for any reason. Love your enemies. Pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. But what does God say here? That you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. Does that mean that we become children of God by loving our enemies? No, he's talking about manifesting and declaring, revealing ourselves to be the children of God. Do you want to look like a, children, a child of God? One simple way to do that is to love the people that hate you. Why would that display yourself as a child of God? Because that is literally what Jesus Christ did. In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. And not only the ungodly, but those that were at enmity against him, Romans chapter 5. Do you know what enmity means? It means an enemy. Jesus died for people that were his sworn enemies, not that he hated them, but that they hated him. And he bore their transgression, even the transgression of hating him, as we are all natural-born haters of God upon the cross of Calvary. But it goes so much beyond even the scheme of redemption. Notice what Jesus says, God makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. The beautiful sunshine that we see today on May 31st, 2020, you know that's a gift of God. Praise God for the gift of the sun. He's caused his sun to rise on the just and the unjust. There are enemies of Christ all through Huntsville that are using the sunshine to do even things that are terrible. And it's a gift that God has given, even to those that despise him. He sends his rain on the just and the unjust, and he causes his sun to rise on the evil and on the good. I've got to move quickly. In a world full of hate, Christians are to be the people epitomizing love. Now, let's move to another one that is controversial in this time. Issues of government. Buckle up. In the book of Luke chapter 3, I want to look at this from two perspectives. First of all, those who are in positions of authority, how they are to deal with the world around them. And 
Number two, those of us who are civilians, as it were, those of us who are under the authority of those in government. In the book of Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist is preaching, and as John preaches, groups of people come to him and they ask his advice. They ask his wisdom. Now, by the way, John the Baptist had a ministry of reconciliation. He would turn the hearts of the children to the fathers and the fathers to the children. That ought to be the goal of every gospel preacher, to reconcile the differences between others. Peter pulled out his sword at one point and took the ear off the high priest's servant, and Jesus says, put your sword up, Peter. They that live by the sword shall die by the sword. We're to be preachers of peace. That doesn't mean that anything goes, and I think that'll be very clear momentarily. Then came publicans to be baptized and said, Master, what shall we do? He said unto them, Exact no more than that which is appointed you. Publicans often added more. They were tax collectors. They would put on a little premium on the top for themselves, and that's why they were oftentimes very wealthy. And it was also why they were despised. Soldiers likewise demanded of him, saying, What shall we do? Now in Rome, soldiers often were to go about the task of what we would refer to today as law enforcement. When Paul was beaten publicly outside the house of God near the end of the book of Acts, who was it that broke up the riot? Soldiers. Soldiers. I believe the man's name was Lucius, one of the captains of this guard. Lucius. Lucius. He was a soldier. Soldiers in that day not only fought wars, but they kept the peace. Soldiers come to John the Baptist and they say, what do we do? He said unto them, do violence to no man. Now there are times that soldiers had to use violent means to fight their wars. I don't think that it was wrong when Samson took up a jawbone of a donkey and slew Philistines. Do you? He did that by faith. And that was, in a sense, violence. When Jericho fell, they did that by faith, and that was violence. When Canaan's land fell, they did that by faith, and that was violence. Sometimes God has authorized the use of force. When David slew Goliath, did David go to him and say, Please, Mr. Giant Man, who's ten feet tall and wants to kill us, can you just leave us alone and go away? That would make us really happy. He buried a rock in the skull of Goliath in the midst of his forehead. He took his own sword. He beheaded him and carried the head to King Saul. By the way, last time I checked, that sounds like what? Well, it sounds like violence. What does John mean here, do violence to no man? That's referring to just simply doing violence for the sake of doing violence. In other words, if you don't have to resort to violence, don't resort to violence. To be just in your execution of your responsibilities as an officer of the state. Do violence to no man. Listen to this one. Neither accuse any falsely. I'm so thankful for the right to a fair trial in our land today, and so should you be. You have the constitutional right not to self-incriminate. Your property cannot be searched by constitutional rights. The Fourth Amendment protects you against that. We have rights as a law in this land 
because our land's laws were framed in reflection of the Word of God, accuse no man falsely. John the Baptist tells the powers that be in that day, do not bring false accusations against other men. I know so many good, godly law enforcement officers. And I know that things such as a false accusation and a crooked police officer turns their stomachs. No one despises someone such as that more than someone like my father, our dear brother Jeff, who's a retired police officer. That affects no one more than it does those who stand for what's right. The only comparison that I have that I can personally sympathize with is that of the charlatan false preachers and false prophets, the way that the rest of us feel about them. It turns my stomach to see a false teacher. I can only imagine what a, a, true, a true lover of justice feels when they see someone committing injustice. And be content with your wages. Now, why would they be content with their wages? Don't take things from people. Be content with what you're paid, which, by the way, usually was in salt. If you hear a man's not worth his salt, what does that mean? He's not worth his wages. How relevant is that in our world today? There it is in the Word of God. It's been there for 2,000 years. What would... Scripture tell us concerning those that bear the responsibility of keeping the peace to be just. But for the rest of us, what would the Word of God have us to know about our responsibilities to the powers that be? Turn over to the book of Titus, chapter 3 and verse 1. Now, this is Paul writing to a minister, and he tells him all through this pastoral advice, Speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. Make sound teaching attractive to God's people. One of these sound teachings, put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work, to speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers, but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. For we ourselves were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers, lusts, and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and to powers. If an officer of the law tells you, stop, you know what your responsibility to God is? To stop. If he says, put your hands up, do you know what your responsibility is? To put your hands up. If you are unjustly accused, you will settle it in court. I promise you, you will not win on the street. It will end very bad for you. Whatever they say, you do. Because they have authority given to them by God. How do you know that? I'll show you in just a minute. But it is our responsibility to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work. Why are we, or did we, meet outside? Because the government said, in our state, you don't need more than 10 people inside. So what do we do? 
we met outside because we're subject to principalities and powers, and it wasn't an unjust commandment. Now, if they left the school directly to our right, my right open, and told us not to meet, that would let us know that it's unjust. But they closed the school. It isn't some conspiracy to make churches quit meeting or they wouldn't have closed the school. Do you think they're going to close schools? That's where they indoctrinate. In many places, that's a system of indoctrination of young people. They're not going to close that for no reason. That told me that it was them doing the best they could do. And so we were subject to principalities and powers. And we obey magistrates. We do what we're told by the government because God has instituted the government as a power over us. And by the way, one of the words that sums up our responsibility in many areas of life is the word submission. And as Americans, we don't like to submit. Now, you wives, your head is your husband. And you're to submit to your husband. We are to submit to our church. Husbands are to submit to Christ. The head of every woman is the man. The head of every man is Christ. The head of Christ is God. Our lives are to be lives of submission. And one of the forms of submission is submission to the powers that be. If they say drive 70, drive 70. Do I violate that? Yes. Did I violate that last night? Yes. Because I had a six-hour drive to come here to preach, and I was tired. And then a tire flew off a car and smashed my bumper. And I was even more tired. Did I drive over 70? Yes, I did, but I should have kept it under the speed limit. And by the way, why do I always want to push the envelope? Because I have in me a nature that works all manner of concupiscence, which means forbidden desires. If we hear a law, the flesh in us says, I want to break that law. Go 70. Okay, I'll go 75. See if I can get away with it. You parents, here's you a social experiment. Pick one drawer in your house, have nothing in it, and tell your kids, that's the one drawer you can't open. What drawer do you think it is that they're going to want to open the most? That one drawer. Why? Concupiscence. That's all of us by nature. We are to submit as believers to rightful forms of authority over us. There is submission in the home. There is submission in the church, submitting ourselves one to another. Ephesians chapter 5. And there is proper submission to the government, the powers that be. Romans chapter 13, I wish every elected official in this country could read this passage today. Let every soul be subject to the higher powers. Subjection means submission. For there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Every libertarian just cried. The powers that be are ordained of God. There is no power but of God. God made three institutions in the world. The government, the home, and the church. All three have their own jurisdiction. They have their own authority. And as a believer in Christ, I'm to submit to all three, provided what I'm commanded by all three doesn't violate the Word of God, which we're going to come to in just a moment. I said this wouldn't be a 70-minute sermon. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. Does that mean in hell? No, it means by the powers that be. In other words, if I resist the powers that be when they're reasonable, I'm going to end up in prison, and that is actually where I should end up. 
If I'm going 80 and a 70 and I get a ticket, which, praise God, I never have, I shouldn't complain. I deserve that damnation, that condemnation, that penalty. Now listen to this. I wish every mayor and police chief and governor in this country knew this verse. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. God holds them accountable to terrorize that which is sinful and those who perpetrate such. Will thou not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. In the same way I minister the gospel, he is to minister justice. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. What does a sword do? It takes a life. He is a minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. When anarchists burn buildings in cities, it is a responsibility of the powers that be to terrorize those who would commit such. And that's a simple biblical fact of the matter. The only exception to this, and we'll be very quickly, is when we're commanded by those that are in command to do something that violates the Word of God and then Acts chapter 5, 29 stands as a testimony of our response. It's simply put, we ought to obey God rather than men. If the government ever says it is illegal for you to be a Christian, then we will take whatever consequences come to us. We will meet an underground. We will serve God. We cannot disobey our Lord. I would end that point by simply saying that Paul also utilized every one of his rights as a Roman citizen. In Acts chapter 22, they beat him. They were going to scourge him. Paul says, you scourged me uncondemned being a Roman. They suddenly became afraid. What do you mean you're a Roman? You see, if you're a Roman, you were not allowed to be dealt with like that without certain due process, much like us as Americans. You scourged me uncondemned being a Roman. We didn't know you were a Roman. And suddenly they became afraid. Paul utilized his appeals process he used every one of his rights as a Roman citizen, and we would be wise to utilize every one of our rights as American citizens. You should familiarize yourself with the Constitution and the rights that you have as an American citizen. Next point, the general treatment of others. Now We've all heard of the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But this is a rough paraphrase of one of the teachings of Christ in Matthew chapter 7. Therefore, all things whatsoever you would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. That means that if I prefer to be treated in such a way, then I should treat others in that way. Who here likes to be mistreated? None of us. And so I should never mistreat others. Nothing is more disappointed when you're disappointing than when you're kind to someone and they are rude and mean to you, is it? You hold a door open, just a kind gesture. Open a door open for somebody and they don't even bother to turn and give you a glance as they walk through it. That happened to me 
I guess it was Wednesday night, and I was disappointed. I intentionally saw this person come into the door. I violated my six feet of separation. I had on a mask. I'm not afraid of coronavirus, but if I have it, I don't want to give it to you. So I keep a cloth layer over my mouth so I don't expel Rona in your face. Open the door. She passes by. Doesn't even glance at me. Now, did I go home and cry about it? No. Technically, I feel like I belong to Generation X. Anyway, I don't need a safe space. I don't need to go home and cry about it. But we should treat others the way that we want to be treated. What if everyone who named the name of Christ lived in the world as kindly to their fellow man as Jesus lived to his fellow man in that day? You know, the only people that Jesus was mean to, in in our words, mean, people who mistreated his children religiously. He'd flip tables. He'd chase people out with whips. That's Jesus. What would Jesus do? Well, running people out of the room with a whip and out of the question because it was his house. Jesus says, Therefore, all things whatsoever you would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. Treat people the way you would want to be treated. That's a simple rule, how it would change the world around us today. If I don't want it done to me, I shouldn't do it to somebody else. Lastly today, the sum of all of these things... God's law, as you know, can be summed up with two simple statements. And you notice that here in Matthew chapter 7, for such is the law and the prophets. In other words, when Jesus said not to lie, when Jesus said not to steal, when Jesus said not to kill, when Jesus said not to covet, when Jesus said not to commit adultery, all of those things... All of that can be summed up by that one statement that he just gave. Treat people the way that you and I would want to be treated. All of the law and the prophets can be summed up by two simple commands. Love God and love your neighbor even as yourself. Do I expect for us to change the world today? No, and there's a lot of the world that's not going to be changed. But as we live in the world... Shining as lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, we will hold forth the word of life and glorify God as we walk in Christ-likeness as a counterculture. There is a book that tells us how that we can navigate every one of these landmines in the world around us today. May we learn it. May we walk by its wisdom to the glory of God and His Son Christ.